You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. On Monday, March the 8th, 1971, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, the greatest fight of all time took place between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. The fight is widely regarded as the biggest boxing match in history and arguably the most anticipated and publicized sporting event ever. An international audience observed the spectacle. It was the first time that two undefeated boxers who held or had held the world heavyweight fought, title fought against each other. The bout held broad appeal for many Americans, including non-boxing and non-sports fans, because Ali, who had been stripped of his title by boxing authority, refused to submit to the draft for the Vietnam War and had become a symbol of the anti-establishment public during his government-imposed exile from the ring. Whereas in contrast, Frazier supported U.S. involvement in the war and had been adopted by elements of the public with alternative views. In addition, both of these men did not like each other. And so they fought 15 rounds, and Frazier ended up winning the fight by unanimous decision. It became Ali's first professional loss. They would go on to fight two more times. The rematch that took place called the Super Fight Number no. 2 in 1974, and then the Thrilla in Manila in 1975, in which both fights were won by Ali. They have labeled this fight between Frazier and Ali as the fight of the century. Today, we find ourselves in a fight, and it is not the fight of the century. It is the fight of all of human history. There is no greater fight that you will face in your life than this fight that we will talk about today. Not addiction, not anger, not lust. In fact, I would propose to you that every one of these comes back to this one fight. And this one fight is the fight of pride versus humility. Pride is the arrogance, is an arrogance or conceit that thinks, I don't need anyone or anything, and that includes God. That, that's pride. Then you have humility, which is the total opposite of pride. It is the right view of yourself in light of who God says you are. It is this dependence upon God for life. It is knowing that everything you have and everyone who is in your life is a gift from God. Amen. And in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30, Matthew records for us a fight scene this fight scene has in one corner humility, which looks like children being brought to Jesus. And then in the other corner, you have pride, which is the rich young ruler who has everything that the world could offer. And so I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. 
as we see this fight between pride and humility unfold before our eyes. Would you stand with me as I read through it so that you can see the whole fight scene and then we will go back and work through it verse by verse. Here we go. Matthew 19, 13 through 30. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first, think rich young ruler, will be last, and the last children will be first. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. I pray now as we look at this passage and we see this battle between pride and humility that, Lord, we would be a church that walks in humility. The reality for us, I think, in this room today is that there's not one person that doesn't struggle with pride. Pride is at the root of every sin, everything that we struggle with today. And so I pray as we look at this picture that Matthew gives us through these encounters that Jesus has to see pride versus humility, that our hearts would be opened up to where we need to confess our pride to you and walk in humility towards you. So thank you, Lord, for time together today. You are a great God worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 13, we begin with children. Then children were brought to Jesus that he may lay hands on them and pray. Children, again, to be reminded you, were of low status in this time in human history. Uh, children were to be seen but not heard, right? They had no power. They had no prestige. They had no authority in this culture. 
And so they are bringing children to Jesus as they would do, parents would do to a rabbi for them to lay hands on them and to bless them. And so these children are coming to Jesus with their parents. In the end of verse 13, it says the disciples rebuked the people. So the disciples say to the parents, stop bringing the kids to Jesus. He's too busy. He's too powerful. He's got too much going on. He doesn't have time for these little kids that bring no value, that have no power, that have no prestige, that have no authority. Let's stop bringing them to Jesus. He's got other things that he's focused on here. Jesus responds and rebukes his disciples by saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, no, no, that's not how this works with me. Let the children come to me. Let those who have no power, no prestige, no authority, let them come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been in this journey with us in the book of Matthew, when you hear children come up again, our minds should go back to Matthew chapter 18. Remember how Jesus started his fourth teaching section? talking about children. Listen to what he says. He uses this visual illustration to begin his fourth teaching in the book of Matthew when he says in verse two of chapter 18, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I love it because the disciples must have not got it the first time. So again here, Jesus is in chapter 20, he's having to bring up this idea of children. As they're saying, no, he doesn't have time for the kids. He's saying, no, no, remember, those who become like a child will be a part of the kingdom of heaven. He goes on in verse four and says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he says, humility is what we see in children, this childlike faith, this dependence on God. Jesus, again, is holding up a child to them and saying, this is what faith looks like. This is what dependence on God looks like. This is what humility looks like, a child. He laid his hands on them in verse 15 and went away. He blessed them, prayed over them, and sent them Away. Again, showing us, you want to know what a greatness looks like in the kingdom of God? Greatness looks like this humility, this childlike faith, this dependence on Christ. Now, Matthew tells us the complete opposite story of a child of humility, and he tells us the story of a man who outwardly seems to be living large, yet pride is going to destroy this man's life. So we start with children, this idea of humility, and now Matthew presents us with this encounter that Jesus has with what we refer to as a rich young ruler. You find that in verse 20, he's rich, or verse 20, that he is young. In verse 22, you find out that he's rich. And when Luke records this story, you find out that he was a ruler as well. So that's where we get the idea of he's a rich young ruler And you see the complete opposite of a child's response to Jesus versus this rich young ruler. Let's look at the story together in verses 16 through 22. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, 
what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? This man comes to Jesus and asks him what he has to do, how he can work his way to inherit eternal life. But what's interesting is he starts with this idea of teacher, what good deed must I do? If you go read Mark's account of it and you read uh, Luke's account of it, you find that they record that he calls him a good teacher. Matthew, for some reason, doesn't put that in his text. He just calls him teacher. But those gospels record good teacher because it makes sense if he said that because look at what Jesus says in verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? The idea is that Jesus is trying to get this man to see that only God is good. And so only God can define what is good, and an implication would be that Jesus is God. So he's sort of doing it in a way to help this man see the fact that you're asking me the question about good teacher, what good deed must I do? You have to understand that God is the only one that is good. And if you're asking me what is good, then you must think I am God. Then he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, there's no one who's good except God. Then he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus' response in keeping the commandments is counter to everything that we've been taught about salvation and eternal life, right? Like we talk about salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so why does Jesus say to this man, keep the commandments and you'll inherit eternal life? Is he promoting a works-based salvation? I would say that Jesus is not saying this is how you get into heaven Instead, he is exposing pride in the man's heart by the fact that he thinks he can earn heaven. So he's exposing pride in this man that, that he thinks somehow if he does all these good things, he can inherit eternal life. So look at how the man responds to Jesus in verse 18. He says to him, which ones? He's like, bring it, let's go, right? Tell me which commandments I have to keep. So Jesus plays along with the man and says, you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting about all these commandments that Jesus gives him is they're all external. You know if you've murdered somebody, right? Like you know if you've stolen something. You know if you haven't told the truth. You can tell if someone is honoring their father and mother. You can tell if someone's loving their neighbor as themselves. So it's interesting that Jesus responds to this young man with all the commandments that are outward in nature where the man could say, I've kept all of those. Look at what he says in verse 20. The young man said, all these I have kept. He's checking all the boxes. Yep, yep. Yep, yep, done, done all those. And then he says, but what do I still lack? See, this is what I find interesting about pride, is pride is never enough. So even though he was following all of these rules, these commandments, he still knew in his heart it wasn't enough. That something was still lacking in his 
life. So although externally he looked good, he had it all together, internally there was this battle of pride going on in his heart of saying, there's still something more. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 21, if you would be perfect. Now let me define the term perfect because we read that today and think, oh, so perfect is keeping all the commandments doing all these things. That's not the idea of the word perfect here that Jesus uses. The, the word perfect here has the idea of being wholly turned toward God, fully devoted to God. So may, maybe a, you need to think of that word perfect differently. It's the idea that you've went all in with God. Right? So he says, if, if you would be all in with God, wholly turned over to God, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus says, a sign of your complete loyalty to me is your willingness to sell everything that you have and follow me. And look at what verse 22 says. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Pride got in the way of this man's relationship with God. That he was willing to follow God to a certain point, but when it went beyond the outward to the inward, what was ruling his heart too far. It was that, that turning point for him. His pride would only let him follow Jesus to a point. And when Jesus says, I want you to sell everything and follow me, he was like, nah, this is not for me. In asking the rich young ruler to sell all he has, Jesus is telling him, I want you to become like a child and be wholly dependent upon me. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says that this man went away sorrowful because his money had him. Pride got in the way of his relationship with God. So is Jesus teaching us that in order to follow him, we have to sell all that we have and wealth is bad? No. In fact, I would encourage you this week to go to Luke chapter 19 and read the follow-up story that Luke gives on this story in Luke chapter 18. And guess who he shares with next as a way to contrast the rich young ruler? He shares the, the story of Zacchaeus. And if you read the story of Zacchaeus, he's a rich man. But he's the total opposite. He responds in humility to God and he gives back to those he's stolen from and gives them even more than what he has stolen from them. He, he's the, he is the epitome of, of humility as opposed to this rich young ruler. In fact, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 gives us the parables, he talks about a rich person who buys a field for the treasure that's on the field. So it's not that Jesus is opposed to wealth. What Jesus is exposing in this story is the pride in the man's heart. Whereas a child is wholly dependent on their parents, a child is wholly dependent on God, a, a rich young ruler is prideful in that he thinks, I don't need anyone or anything. In fact, anything you throw at me, I've got it. See, you can replace money 
with whatever you find your worth in or whatever you think is earning the favor of God. Like the rich young ruler, whenever you're trying to earn something that isn't for sale, you will never come up with enough for whatever that thing may be. So good works will never be enough. Money will never be enough. Your accomplishments will never be enough. The call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die to live. So what is the thing in your life that is exposing the pride in your heart? Like, where is that breaking point for you in following Jesus? Where it's like, he can have everything. I won't murder. I won't lie. I won't steal. I'll honor my parents. I'll love my neighbor as I love myself. But when I get to this one thing, it's a breaking point for me. I'm only going to follow Jesus so far. See, wealth was just the fruit of a heart that said, I can do life on my own. I don't need anything or anyone. That's pride. And the rich young ruler shows us this battle that's going on in our hearts of pride versus humility. To be wholly dependent on God like a child or like the rich young ruler to think, ah, my stuff's too good, my good works, I'm just gonna stick with that. And he walked away sorrowful. Verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, those who put their pride or their, their uh, uh, identity in wealth, it's gonna be difficult for them to enter the kingdom of heaven because there's this arrogance and conceit that I can buy and I can earn my way into the kingdom of heaven. And so he uses this word picture for them to see of the, the largest land animal in that area, which was a camel, and the smallest opening that he could think of, which was the eye of a needle. And he says, it's harder for a camel to go through that little eye of a needle on the end of a needle, right? It's harder for, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for that to happen. It's, it's pretty near impossible, right? And look at how the disciples respond to him. When they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They're picking up what Jesus is throwing down, right? And they're like, there's no way then that anybody can be saved. If works doesn't get you in, and this guy had all the works, and wealth that they associated with God's blessing. So if you were wealthy, it means God was blessing you. So the two big W's in their life, wealth and works, if those two things can't get a person into heaven, then nobody can be saved. And the disciples got it. Their assumption was true. No one has a shot at heaven. No one has a shot at eternal life. Doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how many good works you've done, nobody has a shot at heaven. In fact, Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Pretty depressing, right? That's why they were astonished. 
But look at how Jesus responds to their astonishment and their question. Verse 26, this is hope. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. You got it. Wealth, works, ain't gonna get it done. But with God, all things are possible. Can I get a witness in the room today, right? It was God who demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was God. God has done the impossible through his son, Jesus. God has made a way for you to be right with him. It is possible, not in man's thinking, in man's works, in man's wealth, but it is possible through God, through Jesus. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't earn your way into heaven. It is only through Jesus that you can be made right with God. Can I get a witness in the room today? Then in verse 27, Peter, Peter's mind was still back on the whole rich young ruler deal. He says, we have left everything and followed you. So we've done what the rich young ruler wasn't willing to do, Jesus. What then will we have? So what's in it for us, right? I hear you saying, sell everything and follow you. We've done that. So what is our reward? And I love it. Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for this. I think he thinks this is a good question. Why should you stay following me? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when Jesus rules and reigns on earth, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he speaks specifically to the disciples here. And he says, because the Jewish Israel is rejecting me, you as the disciples will step up and you'll have a special place in my kingdom. Then in verse 29, he talks to everyone and he says this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or a father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, everyone who puts aside pride and humbly follows me will be rewarded. Amen. Like you, take, take my word to the bank. You will be rewarded if you put pride aside and you walk in humility and you follow Jesus. Then he summarizes this with this statement, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be, or the last first. Many who outwardly look like they have it all together will ultimately be the ones who will be last. But the ones who have surrendered to the Lord in their heart, that yes, they know it is impossible through wealth or works to inherit an eternal life, but they have inherited an eternal life. They've walked in humility like a child. They will be first. In verse 30, you get the summation of pride versus humility. Pride ultimately leads you downward, whereas humility leads you upward. Church, the fight of your life, the fight of my life, is going to be pride versus humility. You're going to have to fight against pride. 
because it's not just a century kind of battle, it's a human history battle. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Why did Eve and Adam eat of the fruit? Because of pride. Because they thought they didn't need God. In fact, even more, they wanted to be God. And they felt like God was holding out on them, so they had to eat of the fruit so that they could become like God. And in that moment, sin entered the world. And that's going to be the thing. That's going to be the heart of every battle we're going to have in our life. Whatever addiction you have, whatever thing that you struggle with, I can almost guarantee you that it's going to come back to this pride versus humility. That are you willing to say, I can't do, I can't fight this battle on my own. I need the Lord. Or are you gonna try to do it in your own strength, in your own power? See, the good news for us today is that Christ has won the victory for us over pride through his death, burial, and resurrection. And he calls us to become like a child and walk in humility. And that is only possible through Christ. So we actually as followers of Jesus, fight this battle from a place of victory. Christ has won the victory for us through Jesus Christ. God has won the victory for us through Jesus Christ. So we have actually won the battle. But we have to continue to fight in this world that we live in. So how do we fight the battle of pride versus humility that has already been won in Jesus? Let me give you three things and then we'll be done. The first, I would say, is fight with a childlike faith. I think that's the whole point of verses 13 through 22. This dependence on Christ. You have to say, I can't win the fight on my own. I need Christ. You have to fight this fight of pride versus humility by saying, I can't win it on my own. I don't have it in me to win this battle. I need Christ. There's an old saying that a person is too big for their britches. Have you ever heard that? I have no idea what the word picture is there, but I get the idea that a person thinks too highly of themselves, right? So there must have been some point in human history when somebody wore britches that were too big for them, and somehow that got translated to talk about pride, right? But the point is this, we need to have the heart of John 15, 5, which says, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. That's a childlike faith. A child knows they can't do anything apart from their parents. They can try and attempt it, but they'll always not have enough money, not have the strength to go all the way right. They, they need their parent in their life. And if we're gonna fight this Battle against pride, we have to respond with a childlike faith. Pride tells you, you've got this because you were good. That's what the rich young ruler came in with the mentality. I'm good, I got this. Just tell me what I gotta do and I'll check the boxes and we'll be good to go. Whereas humility says, you got this, but not because you're good, but because God is good. Because he is good. That is a childlike faith. So fight with a childlike faith, then fight from God's grace. In verses 23 through 26, we find that salvation is impossible apart from God. So you didn't earn your salvation. You can't keep yourself saved. So live your life from the grace of God. 
Don't live for the grace of God. This is what the rich young ruler was trying to do, was to earn God's grace. And Jesus says that with man it's impossible, but with God it is possible. With man it is impossible. With God it is possible. So rather than fighting for the grace of God, we as followers of Jesus fight from the grace of God. It reminded me of Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this same grace, listen in verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Titus says, Paul says to, to Titus that this idea that grace is not only what saves you, but grace is what motivates your obedience to Christ. So fight from the grace of God, not fighting for the grace of God. And then last is fight for eternal rewards. God's economy works different than man's economy. Man's economy looks at the temporary rewards the wealth, the here and now, whereas God's economy looks at the eternal rewards. I thought about Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we live our lives for the eternal. So we can put aside pride here. It doesn't have to be all about us because we're not living for the here and now. We're living for what is to come. I had a funeral on Friday night and as I was doing my funeral message, I came across this quote, and I thought it fit today with this point of fighting for eternal reward. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. This is what it means to fight against pride by fighting for those eternal rewards, keeping our eyes on what is to come. The fight of our lifetime will be pride versus humility. So I would encourage you in your life to fight for humility. Humility leads to life. Pride leads to death. And you know that, right? Like that, That's what I hate about pride is that we know it in our hearts. But it's easy to sit in this room and be like, head knowledge, right? I know pride's gonna lead to death. But it's a lot more difficult when I get home today to walk in humility with my family. It's a lot harder on Monday when you go to school and you gotta walk in humility. See, humility leads to blessings from Jesus. Whereas pride leads walking away sorrowful because you had too much pride. Father, thank you for this challenging word from you today where we get to see the 
battle that is raging in every one of our hearts through the story of this, these children and the story of the rich young ruler. And so, Lord, I pray that as you have done in my own heart and life this week, as you have exposed pride, that we would confess it to you and we would know that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us, Lord, as a church to fight this battle, to to fight it with a childlike faith. Help us in our Christian walk to never get too big for our britches, but to walk in this dependence on you. Whether things are going really good or we're, as Clint read in Psalms 23, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. May we be dependent upon you. Help us, Lord, as we fight this battle to fight from God's grace, your grace for us. We didn't earn our way into the family. We don't keep ourselves in the family. You are the one that does that. And so help us as we live for you to be motivated by the grace of God, motivated by your love for us. And then, Lord, I I ask that you would help us to fight with the eternal rewards. To walk in humility may mean that we get walked on. To walk in humility may mean we never get the recognition on earth that we think or we would hope we would get. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes set on you. Help us to know that you know, that you have promised reward and that one day the last, the first will be last and the last will be first. So help us to trust in you. Lord, with our heads bowed and our eyes continued, with your heads bowed and your eyes continue to be closed, I, I would ask you if you struggle with pride, but I think that would be setting you up for pride, right? Because if you didn't raise your hand and say you struggled with pride, then you'd be lying to me, which would be pride, right? So let's think about it differently today. For the rich young ruler, it was wealth. That was the breaking point for him. That's where pride and humility just couldn't humble himself to sell everything that he had. And so what I want to ask you right now in this moment of quietness with you and the Lord, what is that breaking point for you? Maybe it's control of your family. You're willing to give God control of everything, but when it comes to my kids, I want control. Maybe it's the job that you find yourselves in. It's like, I'll give God everything, but I'm not gonna give him this section of my life. What is that thing? And I would ask you right now, in the quietness of your heart, confess that to the Lord and ask him to help you to become like a child and to walk in humility. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.